I don't know if you picked up on it, but there are now three Andrews on staff here at Leewood, and I'm, uh, I'm really trying to have a good attitude about it. Um, the good news is I really like Andrew Campbell, at least, so <laughs> that was for you, Andrew, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's pray, shall we? Uh, Father, thank you so much for this wonderful faith family that we have here, and uh, we ask uh, that you would open your word to us this morning, that by your spirit we would understand exactly what it is you're telling us, uh, and what you're asking of us, and, and what you've done for us. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning, and happy new year. Uh, my name's Andrew, like I said, uh, maybe I didn't say, but my name's Andrew. Uh, it's great to be here with you this morning, and uh, I hope you all have recovered from the holidays. Um, and I say that on purpose, because I remember a time when life was a little simpler, where the holidays was actually time off. Um, but now with two young kids and travel and family, it's like you can't really recover until you get home and you go back to work. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, finally, I can relax. So hopefully you've, you've recovered a little bit. Um, did anyone stay up to midnight to ring in the new year? Anybody stay up? Did you immediately regret it? Like, yeah. Uh, students and children, did anyone, this is the first year they stayed up to midnight? Your parents let you stay up? Anyone's first year doing that? No, you've been doing that forever. No, it was, it was one. I saw one. Okay. Well, I feel like uh, every year that I've stayed up uh, to watch the ball drop in New York, I regret it. Um, not only because I'm tired and cranky by the time uh, midnight actually rolls around, which I am, and not only because it li- you forget this every year, but it literally is just a ball slowly moving down until midnight. <laughs> and you're like, this is good, this is good television? I, I don't understand. Um, but, also, but really because uh, in some ways I feel like it's a, it's a metaphor for the new year in general. And I, and I don't mean this to be depressing, um, but is there a more disappointing time of year than January? Um, I mean, first the Chiefs lose in the most heartbreaking way I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen, um, right? But not, not only that, but it's like every January we're forced to uh, catalog things that we don't like about ourselves and come up with some kind of plan to fix them that's never worked before, but somehow... <laughs> Uh, or there's something in our life we don't like, and you're like, oh, we need to, make, we need to change this. And, and, we, and we, we convince ourselves that <laughs> this is the year we're actually going to follow through, and, and, and we don't. Um, and uh, this disappointment, there's, it's, it, and I, mean, I really mean this, that, that kind of disappointment, it can infect your faith, too. And um, much of the Bible, if you think about it, is God's promise of change, is God's promise of new life. It's his promise of transformation. And, and year after year, I think we often feel the same. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, uh, you feel disappointed in your faith right now. Maybe you, you've never put words to that. But if you think about it, that is how you feel. You, you wonder, is, is, is there something better out there? Could you do it better on your own? Um, or maybe you don't really have faith uh, and you're curious and, and you're here now because you're disappointed with the way your life is going or the person you feel that you've, you're becoming. And uh, you thought you might give church a try in the new year. And, uh, you, you know, you want things to be better. And you thought maybe a little church will help with that. Well, regardless of where we are, I, I'm glad that we're here together now to study this book of Hebrews. We're going to be in this book uh, for several months this year in, in our new series, True and Better. And uh, in many ways, I'm glad that we're here because the book of Hebrews is really written for disappointed people. And uh, the people, people who thought they were turning over a new leaf— uh, right, these, these 
people who received this letter, they thought they were turning over a new leaf when they followed this Jesus guy. And they thought things would be different with him. Maybe easier, smoother, or at least clearer with him. But for these first century Christians who, who received this letter, things only got harder for them. And God's promises to them, they started to feel farther and farther away, and God seemed distant from them. And, and as they read, as we, we get the feeling in this letter, they're, they're, they're beginning to say to themselves, wasn't life better before this? Before Jesus, before church? Wasn't life easier when I just, when I just maintained the status quo? When I didn't make waves? Maybe I can do better than this. And what's happening now? There's got to be something out there that's better than what I'm going through right now. And throughout this letter, we get the sense that people in this church, that the, that the letter of Hebrews was written to, are just drifting away. They're just slowly drifting away. And the author of Hebrews, we don't, we don't know who it is, one of the only letters in the New Testament, we don't really know who wrote it. He, he writes to this church of disappointed people. And he says, I know things aren't easy. I know things are hard. I know you're tired. I know you're disillusioned, but, but don't be fooled. You cannot do better than Jesus. You cannot do better than Jesus. And the author will say this essentially, that what I, you know, over and over and over again, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Believe me, Jesus is better. Jesus is better for a lot of reasons. At least three of those reasons are in the text we just read, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And if you're taking notes, uh, here's where we're going this morning. You can write these down. Jesus is better... Because he's the face of God. He's the heart of God. And he's the, he's the answer of God. He's the face of God. He's the heart of God. And he's the answer of God. So first, Jesus is the face of God. If you haven't yet turned to Hebrews in your Bible, go ahead and do so now. Uh, it's near the end of the Bible. So if you can get to the book of Revelation, which is the last book, go a few books back toward the, the beginning and you'll get to Hebrews. It's on page 648, I believe, if you're using a Bible in the back. Uh, let's read from there. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's stop there for a sec. So the author's saying a lot in these few verses. He's saying it a lot. But uh, one, strike, one of the more striking phrases he uses that we just read, he says this of Jesus. He says, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, this word imprint is translating uh, the Greek word character, which is where we get our English word character. And uh, this word character in the ancient world uh, so Jesus is the very character of God. And that word in the ancient world uh, was often used uh, to speak of family likeness, especially in the face. Now, I've got two kiddos now. I've got a two-year-old and a six-month-old. And when you have young kiddos, you know this. We just got back from a, from a visit uh, for, with family over Christmas. And if you've got young kids, you know that people's favorite thing to do with young kids is try to tell you which one of them looks more like you or your spouse, Right? And it really, as if you care what, <laughs> what they think, right? Because really you're just like, just, you just take care of them. I don't care what you think they look like. Will you just watch them? Like, tell me in an hour who you think they look like. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway. Um, so they, I mean, usually they, they get down and they, 
They try to get your kid to smile or giggle or something, you know, get a facial expression so they can kind of gauge where they are. And, you know, in my case, they say, oh, he's, you know, he's so cute or she's so pretty or they're, they're so smart. They're, they're so engaged. Just like Becca is usually the conclusion, right? <laughs> Which is fine. Um, and it, it, honestly, it doesn't change as you get older because every day I look in the mirror and I, look, I, I think I see my dad every, in the mirror every day. It's incredible how that family likeness stays with you over time. And so the author is saying here that Jesus' face, which is a metaphor for Jesus' personality and his attitudes and his belief, his whole being, Jesus' whole being is the exact image. It is the very face of God himself. And Jesus said as much about himself in his lifetime. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, this is one of the more audacious claims Jesus would ever make about himself because to look, he was, what he said was to look at me, to look at Jesus and to know him and to, ex, to study him and to examine him, to read about him is not, simply to look at, um, it's not simply to look at another historical figure. It's not, it's not another uh, biography of some first century rabbi. It is to study according to Jesus. It is to study and to know and to reckon with the very face of God. You cannot do better than Jesus because he is the only one who truly reveals who God is. Now, many other faiths and philosophies and ways of life teach. They teach truths. Uh, They perhaps even shape wonderful and moral people. They do, but no other religious teacher, no matter how brilliant or persuasive, can claim to look upon me is to see the divine, is to see the maker of the universe in human flesh, Only Jesus makes that claim. And only Jesus says, kill me and I'll prove it to you. And this implies several things about God that we must believe, we must deal with if Jesus is truly the revelation of who God is. And the the first implication of this is that God is personal. He's personal. The author says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And really what he's referring to there is the Old Testament, which records how God revealed himself to the Hebrew people throughout history. But in these last, the author turns, but in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now notice the contrast between those two sentences. When God spoke previously, it was in many ways and at many times through the prophets. So you think, you know, the Ten Commandments here and a prophecy there and a judgment there, all throughout the Old Testament. And uh, most of you read through in Open Here in 2013, you read most of that. So you know what I'm talking about, how God revealed himself throughout the Old Testament. But now, the author says, but now God has spoken one way at one time, not through a prophet, but through his very son, his very own son. Not through words and ideas, but through a person, Jesus Christ. In other words, when God wants to fully express himself, He does not do so as an abstract idea or as a principle of truth in the universe. He does not do it as some kind of force or power. He does not do it as an it. He he does it as a he, as a person. And people, unlike ideas or powers or other things people worship, they want to be known. People want to be known. And this is the second implication. If Jesus is the face of God, then God is knowable. 
To know Jesus is to know God. And that's important. Because it means that God does not simply want you to acknowledge that he exists. He wants to be known by you. He actually wants to relate to you like a person does. And he sent his son Jesus not simply so that we would know there was a God, but that we might know who he is and what he is like. And that maybe, just maybe, we might desire to be with him on those terms. He wants to be known. And finally, if Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, the very face of God, then then God is personal, he's knowable, he is also unchangeable. It's unchangeable. And you see this when the author points out in verse 2, but in these last days, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And by last days, the author means this whole age, this whole period of time between Jesus' first coming at Christmas, his birth, and his next coming, which will signal the end of the world, the last days. So what does that mean? It means from the first century up to now, until the end of time, there is no fuller, there is no more final expression of who God is and what he is like than Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I once went to a church uh, that had the phrase printed on their bulletin, God still speaks, with an ellipsis, a dot, dot, dot. God still speaks, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, the idea was, you know, what might he say next? You'll find out at our church, I guess. (laughs) Now, the author of Hebrews is saying, really, there's nothing left to say. God said everything he wanted to say. He expressed everything he wanted to express in Jesus, not dot, 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 period, full stop. In a way, there's nothing more that God desires to say on the subject. This is who I am. You've seen me now. I don't think that means God doesn't interact with us through his spirit. He does, but all communication from here on out, will point us back to Jesus. Reminding us of him because he is God's final word. And that means God does not change. It means Jesus is a trustworthy and true picture of God in eternity. That's what he's like. And frankly, if you think about it, that's mixed news for us. And I'll tell you why. On the one hand, it's good news because it means that God is trustworthy. It means he doesn't change his mind. What he says happens. What Jesus taught is true. What he promises will happen. You can bank on it. The good news is that God is not a liar. The bad news is that we are. We are. You see, the central story of the Bible is not that God changed and that we as humans have struggled to keep up with him. And that's why the world is a broken place. And that's why we tend to be moral failures and we tend to to hurt other people. That's not the story. The story is that we changed. We sinned. We rebelled. And we've been taking out the consequences of that decision on God ever since. That's the story. We want a God whose opinions and moral boundaries shift like ours do. And if Jesus is the final word, there's a lot there that he says and does that we will not like. And there are a lot of things we will not live up to. And if you haven't, if you don't believe me, it means you haven't really read the New Testament. And this is the real tension of the whole Bible, is what does a good and just and unchanging God do with a rebellious and lying and treacherous humanity? What does he do? You see, it's not enough for Jesus to reveal the face of God. It's not enough for us to see God because we will reject him anyway. 
we will. Our sin has so blinded us to truth that we will always reject God. Just look at Jesus' life. He was rejected and crucified for revealing who God is. He said, I'm God, and he proved it with his miracles and his teaching. And all the people said, crucify him. It's not enough. And the author hints that it's not enough in in these verses. If you look at verse 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now watch this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins. And what in the world does that mean? Well, it's interesting that the author gives a pattern of Jesus' life in in these verses. And and he starts with Jesus' glory before the incarnation. Jesus' glory in heaven before he became a human being. And then he ends with Jesus' glory when he returns to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father on the throne of the universe. So glory and glory. And in between, he only mentions one thing Jesus did. He only mentions one thing Jesus did during his time on earth. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't his teaching. It was he made purification for sin. This is the one thing that characterizes his life. Now what does that mean? Well, it's a reference to the cross. And the author is saying Jesus had this glory in heaven He came and he died as a human being and then he returned to glory in heaven now. And it's reminding us that while Christ was on earth, he was destined to die, to be executed, to be crucified. And by so doing, don't miss this, purify our sin. That's why he came. Because only by dealing with our sin and paying the penalty of our sin could we ever know God. And Jesus deals with our sin by his death on the cross. And this is our next point. Jesus not only reveals is the fullest revelation of who God is, is the very face of God, but he's also the heart of God. He also shows us exactly the way God feels about us and the lengths that he would go to to save us. And the author will not let us miss the audacity of God's love in Jesus. Think, think with me on this just for a moment. Imagine with me the crucifixion. Okay, you can see Calvary's hill. You see three crosses on that hill, and I want you to look at the one in the middle. You maybe don't know much about this person. Maybe you do, this Jesus guy. But the author of Hebrews is telling you that what you are looking at, which is a man dying on a cross, is the fullest revelation of God the world has ever or will ever see. God, right, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Well, you're looking at him. There he is. And immediately what strikes you as you look at this guy is is his poverty. And in his life, he had nothing. He didn't seem to have any possessions. He certainly didn't have a home. He was dirt poor. And now in this moment, even his, his life is taken from him. He has nothing. He has nothing. And yet he is the one who, as the author puts in verse 2, is heir of all things. This is the son of God. This is the man we see on the cross. He is the wealthiest person in the universe. Wealth, the word wealth doesn't even begin to describe what he has. He has all things by his birthright, by who he is. And yet on the cross he is poor. He is nothing. And he's weak. 
You see him on the cross. He's struggling to breathe. He cannot help himself. He's mocked by those around him, right? Come down, save yourself. And he doesn't. He stays. He could barely carry the cross up there at all anyway. And yet he is the one, as the author says, by whom God made the world, made the universe. He it was that created all things and organized them into a beautiful, livable world. And not only so, he is the one who upholds the universe even now by the word of his power. He speaks and it happens. And he's shamed and he's rejected on the cross. You see him numbered with transgressors. He's killed like a common thief. And there was no more shameful way to die in the ancient world than to be crucified on a cross. He's accursed He's rejected by his own friends, his own people, turned him over to their worst enemies. They hated him so much. And yet he is <laughs> the very radiance of the glory of God. All of God's glory is his. This one nailed to a cross is the one who has the authority and the power and the glory to sit at God's right hand on the throne of the entire universe. He is judge of all. And here he is being judged. And as we see this man on the cross, he's poor, he's weak, he's rejected, but we know who he is. We know who he truly is. If we're listening to the author of Hebrews, we must ask the question, if Jesus had all things, if Jesus made all things, if he sustains all things, if he has infinite power and glory and beauty, then what in the world is he doing on a cross? What is he doing there? What in the world brought him to this moment? And would you believe me if I told you it was for us? That it was for us? Would you believe me if I said Jesus left all of that glory? It's incomprehensible glory to us. Can't even imagine it. To become a human being and a poor one at that. To die a shameful death so that we might be purified from sin. And this, of course, is the good news of the Bible. This is the gospel. That Jesus reveals not only God's character, his face, but his heart. If God would give us his only son to save us from our own sin, what would he ever withhold from you? There's nothing more precious that he has. If Jesus is God's final word, then the last thing God wants you to know about yourself is the Lord of the universe giving up everything, everything for you. That's the last thing he wants you to know. You are loved, you are accepted, you are worthy because of what Jesus has done. That's God's heart for you. You know why you can't do better than Jesus? Because Jesus is the only God who gave up everything for you. Usually God's one or the other way around. And not only so, but Jesus is, is not only powerful. He's not only the sustainer of the universe. He's sympathetic. <laughs> he understands. He has lived through our weakness. And this is one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus understands what it is to be human, what it is to suffer. God knows what it's like to feel betrayed. He knows what it's like to be single and lonely. He knows what it's like to be mocked and made fun of. God knows what it's like to feel temptation. He knows what it's like to struggle to do the right thing. You cannot do better than him. Jesus holds the, together the paradox of God that we find so hard to believe 
but we need, we long for so desperately, which is that God is on the one hand both terrifyingly powerful and shockingly intimate. There's nothing he cannot do, and yet all he wants to do is reconcile you to him. He has every right to judge, and yet he saves. You cannot do better than Jesus because he shows the world exactly what God is like. He's the face of God. And he shows the heart of God, the audacity of God's love for us. And finally, you cannot do better than Jesus because he is the answer of God. He's the answer of God. To all of our questions in life, at least the ones that matter the most, Jesus is God's response. Because Jesus is God's final word. We talked about that. He becomes our source. He becomes our litmus test for all other truth. And this is not only true for skeptics or seekers here today. It's true for believers of all time. For the skeptic or the one who's seeking, the person looking for God, Jesus is always the beginning place for faith. He's the beginning place to correct our misconceptions of God. You see, whether you admit it or not, whether you can say it out loud or not, you have a preconception of who God is. When someone says the word God, an image comes to your mind, just does. It's human. And, and, and in that sense, people know God functionally in a lot of different ways. So for some people, God is something like Santa Claus. That's kind of the image that comes into mind. He's a benevolent grandfather who loves his kids regardless of what they do, right? He loves everyone. He judges no one. He's okay if you kind of acknowledge him once or twice a year. That's fine. And uh, he'll, he'll give you gifts if you ask nicely. It's kind of the image. And for others, God is really more of a policeman. He's always trying to catch you doing the wrong thing. He could care less about you. It's all about the law. It's all about right and wrong. It's all about who's good and who's bad, who's in and who's out. He's either someone you submit to or someone you avoid. He's certainly not someone that you love or follow. And for others, maybe God is a lie. He's a fairy tale that someone a long time ago made up to feel better about life. He isn't real and he is not to be relied upon or trusted. And of course, in some of the worst cases and some of the hardest cases, God is an enemy. He's someone who misleads you. He's someone who promises and doesn't deliver. He's someone who abandons you and does not answer when you call. He's someone who hurts you. And people raised in abusive homes often have a view of God like that. And, and the point is, we could go on and on. The point is, we all approach God with our own separate baggage. But according to the book of Hebrews, the beauty of Jesus is that regardless of how you have approached God in the past, whether God as policeman or God as a lie, it's now you know you can approach God, not as Santa, not as enemy, but God as Jesus. You can know him. He's the ultimate revelation of God and the corrective of our misunderstandings of God. Jesus is God in a way we can understand and comprehend. And his life and death and resurrection become the foundation of faith. So if you can accept that Jesus died and rose again, and there are lots of good reasons to do so, if you can accept that, then you can trust Jesus with all of your faith questions. Is there a God? Yes, because Jesus taught so. Does God care about evil and suffering? Is he doing something about it? Yes, Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend. He healed those who were sick and those who were poor. He confronted evil and corruption in his own day. Well, how does, he want, how does God want me to live? What does life look like if there's a God? Well, Jesus shows us the good, what the good life looks like. He shows us what it means to follow God and, and love him. Jesus is the final revelation of God is the beginning of faith. He's always the first place we look to discover truth 
about God. He is also for the believer, for the person who fo- follows him. He is the ultimate resource for perseverance and endurance. And that is why, as we'll see, the author of Hebrews is constantly referring his readers back to Jesus. He's saying, look to Jesus, look to Jesus as the forerunner of your faith. Because when we encounter suffering or disappointment or we're discouraged or we have doubts, we must always look to Jesus as God's answer to our predicament. Now let me explain. When we find ourselves asking, as I think we often do, why why am I suffering so greatly when God says he loves me? Has anyone ever asked that question? Why is this so hard if God says he loves me? Well, we can look to Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life and still encountered suffering. He is God's son, and yet in God's plan was still subject to pain. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. You cannot look at Jesus' example and conclude God doesn't love me when life is hard. You can't do that. In fact, it means that we are children just like Jesus. That's the conclusion the author of Hebrews will come to, and we'll get to that. Not only so, but he understands our pain. He understands our hardship because he went through it. And he can give you the strength you need to endure. How can we trust God when we don't see a way forward? When things seem so bleak and so hopeless, we cannot possibly understand how God can redeem this moment. What do we do? We look to Jesus, who encountered great doubt and fear before going to the cross, and he prayed to the Father that that he would take this away from him. He didn't want to go down this path, but he submitted anyway and experienced a hell that we will never have to experience. We can always trust that God is leading us in truth for our good, even when we cannot see it or understand it, because we know Jesus went through the worst for us. We can look back to see ahead. How do we know God is listening when we pray to him And he seems silent. Well, we can look to Jesus who sits at God's right hand and intercedes for us even when we don't ask for it. Even when we aren't praying, he's interceding. If God sent Jesus before we asked to be saved, because we didn't ask. If God sent Jesus before, if he loved us before we loved him, will he not give us all good things now Will he not hear us when we call to him? You see, Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they become God's answer to our questions and our struggles. They were a resource for us when we fear and doubt and struggle. And I mention this in particular because so often, and I'm guilty of this too, when we're struggling with something, when we are hurting, when we have real doubts, when we, we get frustrated, we question God so quickly. We say, why are you silent? Why aren't you talking to me? What do you got to say about this or that or this that's happening in my life? Why aren't you responding? We pray with our mouths and often only in our hearts, God, talk to me. Say something. Where are you? Say something to me. And the author of Hebrews is saying he already did. He already did. He spoke in his son, Jesus. He spoke. He spoke in his incarnation when he left behind all of his glory and honor and power to become a poor son of a carpenter. He spoke when he was nailed to a cross for your sins, when he died like a criminal at the hands of his own creation, when he died within the very universe he called into being. He was speaking. He spoke when he was raised from the dead and he called you into a relationship with him. 
What else could he possibly say or do to convince you that he loves you? What could he, what could he do? When we're discouraged, or when we're tempted to give up, Hebrews will teach us to always look to Jesus, to God's very face, to God's very heart, to God's final word over our lives. Always look there. And when we're tempted to abandon him, like this congregation was that, that the author of Hebrews was writing to, when we're tempted to drift away, to stop coming to church, to stop praying to God, to stop hoping for Jesus to come back, to stop putting our hope in him, we must remember this basic truth that the book of Hebrews will repeat over and over and over again, and it's this. You might be more comfortable without Jesus. You might. You might have more fun without Jesus in your life. You might make more friends without Jesus in your life. You might make more money without Jesus in your life. All of those things are true. But you cannot do better than him. You cannot do better than Jesus. Let's pray to him now. Father, for the gift of your son, who shows us not only who you are, but how you feel about us, about what you would do to save us. We are so thankful. And and Father, I pray now over us by the power of your spirit that that news, that good news, that that proclamation of infinite love over us when we trust in Jesus would inspire us to live a life of trust and obedience to you, not because we have to, but because we love you, because you loved us first and you proved it. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name, who intercedes right now for us. Amen. We wanted to respond to this message from Hebrews uh, with communion, with the Lord's table, because it's one of the most tangible ways we can remember together, we can look to Jesus together in our struggles. And if if we're struggling or, or hurting or suffering loss right now, we see at the Lord's table, we see his body broken, we see his blood shed, and we remember there is no pain, there is no heartache that we are going through that he did not experience, that he did not feel. He's un- he understands completely what we were going through and he is doing something about it. That's what, that's what communion tells you. If you're struggling with loneliness or isolation, we see at the Lord's table, the church gathers around this table together. This is a symbol that Jesus builds his church and his promise of community around you. You can ask for help in that moment to find that at the Lord's table. And if you're struggling with shame or guilt, there's no way God could accept me. There's no way he could love me. We remember that at the Lord's table that Jesus is the the sustainer of the universe, that he knows everything about you, He knows everything you've done. He knows everything that you're going to do, everything that you're capable of doing. He made provision and died for you anyway. He knows more about you than you do. He loves you anyway. Come to the table. Bring your questions, your struggles, your doubts, and your fears to God's table and taste God's answer in Jesus. There are stations all around the room. Please come when you're ready and partake. Please come.